Hello and welcome to the Africa Hour, the show where we dedicate time and expertise to one policy issue in one African country. I am Olumide Abimbola. This season, we are focusing on Africa's growing tech ecosystem. And today, we head to Nigeria, where people are still recovering from the shock of a controversial cashless experiment that was introduced by the country's central bank under former Governor Godwin Emefile. Emefile was suspended in June by the newly inaugurated President Bola Tinubu. Because there is currently more cash outside the Nigerian banking system than there is in it, the central bank has been trying to implement a cashless strategy for over a decade. The bank even launched a digital version of the Naira, the country's currency, and called it the E-Naira. But it hasn't been so popular. Last December, very close to the general elections, the bank tried something else. It redesigned the Naira and only allowed low volumes of cash to be in circulation. But that ended up creating a severe cash scarcity that made life difficult and led to several violent protests. There are claims that some persons were killed. We only came to at least plead with the bank, at least to pity us. But while coming, police came out of the central bank, started shooting, attacking us. They even killed people. About three persons died today. So, the questions I'm curious about are, what are the obstacles blocking Nigeria, Africa's largest economy, from going cashless? Should Nigeria even be trying to go cashless at all? What will it take to finally implement a successful transition? And what role can technology play in this process? Today, I speak to three guests who are experts on the topic. That's in a minute. A reminder as to why this is an important conversation. Using less physical money in Nigeria would mean reduced cost of handling cash, a better monitoring of financial crimes, and it would include more people, especially in rural areas, you know, in the financial and banking system, what we policy wonks describe as financial inclusion. According to a 2020 study, some 45% of Nigerian adults do not have a bank account. But Nigerian authorities have not fully achieved their goals. What have the authorities done? What have they done right? What have they done wrong and what should they do next? I'm talking to Kelechuku Ogu, a research analyst with SBM Intelligence, one of Nigeria's leading geopolitical intelligence platforms. Welcome, Kelechuku. Thank you, Olumide. Good afternoon. I also have Chimgo Zirim Wokoma, who is a senior reporter with TechPoint Africa, a technology publication in Nigeria. Hi, Chimgo Zirim. Thank you, Olumide. It's nice to be here. And last but not the least, we have Olubumi Ayontunji, who is a legal practitioner with a focus on public policy, as well as a policy consultant to committees in the Nigerian parliament. Welcome, Olubumi. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure being here. I look forward to a productive conversation. Thank you for joining me. I'll start with you, Olubumi. In December, the central bank, under the former governor, 
Godwin Emefile announced the new policy on currency change as well as the cashless policy. I briefly talked about this in the intro, but I'd like you to explain a bit more. Why was this important and was it a wrong decision from a policy standpoint? I think I'd like to reward your question. Please go ahead. Now, I'll take you from three prongs, right? Uh, is it legal, policy-wise, with the right steps taken and the impact on the citizens? For me, right? Personally, and when I wrote, I wrote this in a brief to the National Assembly as part of my job as at that time. You know, Section 2B, Section 18A, Section 19AB, the Central Bank Act provides for that. So the Central Bank has done nothing in regard by changing the face of the currency, you know, and for the reasons, official reasons given, being counterfeiting, having too many cash outside the system than we have in the system, and in all those stuff, others, right, that the then CBN governor gave to citizens on why they have to do that. However, in public policy, there's a popular epigram that we call the Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law states that anything that can go wrong will go wrong in a policy. I'll explain. When you are starting or pushing to implement a policy, any idea of a mistake should be foreseen. There are stages to public sector innovation and implementation. You have the conception stage, the analysis stage, the consultation stage, before you get to implementation. None of this was undertaken, you know. All we had was suddenly the CBN governor came and said he's recommended to the president that we need to change our currencies. Stakeholders were definitely not consulted. Nigerians never were ready. And from Ikutumudu in Oshun State, a state in the southwestern part of Nigeria, my village, as I would put it, I hate to refer to it as a village anyways, had no bank for anybody to save their money. They would have to travel to the state capital to save their money or the nearest town, Ife. And if you ask about just two bands, serving thousands of people. Now, when you don't have enough infrastructure to take in a policy that you are just pushing on the people, definitely it's bound to fail. And then we had another angle where the National Assembly rejected it. State governors took the central bank to court. So we have the legislative arm of government rejecting that policy, the judicial arm of government altering the policy. It was a mess, an old mess between the three arms of government that are supposed to work holistically in implementing a policy. And this is to show you that no preparation was done. And that's why you see three months after the policy was partially withdrawn and the effectiveness of the policy now, or as you call it, the controversial cashless experiment. I love that word when you were explaining it. Has done everything it's supposed to, it was intended not to do. Mm. Now inflation is God. I will. I don't even want to delve into that. You could imagine how a supposed CBN of one of the biggest economy in Africa has really mismanaged the economy. I would leave the experts to discuss on on the mathematics here. But personally, policy wise, the policy was meant to fill up an issue. Right. And I think the cultures of the policy, the CBN governor or the then CBN governor, knew it would fail. Okay, so if I understood you correctly, it was a legal thing that they could do. They were allowed to do that legally, but they implemented it in a wrong way. Uh, I, I do not think it does. Have to do with it. They, they planned it the wrong way. They conceived it the wrong way. Okay. They did follow the analytical uh, policy process and the implementation was paid off. Okay, I'm going to turn now to Kelechuku. We've heard just now from Olubumi that things didn't go quite as planned, or at least as people would have expected it to go. 
you contributed to a report called Strapped that was recently released by the firm you work with, SBM Intelligence. And that report analyzed how the currency change exercise played out. Olubumi has touched on some of the issues, but perhaps you could walk us through it a bit more. What did you find in your research? So we, we did this um, district survey to confirm some of the things that we were seeing and some of the observations that Olubumi just made. And it was not surprising what we found from the sample size that we, we looked at. What we saw was that over 80% of households that we surveyed said they were affected. Over 93% of the businesses that we surveyed said sales had dropped you know, to varying degrees. Um, 36% plus businesses had to lay off staff. About 65% of businesses were unable to access loans. These were the things that came out as a consequence of that policy. Nigerians are really dependent on cash because 57% plus of the economy is tagged or classified as informal. So if you are trading with anyone, you are going to have to deal with the informal sector and you are going to need to use cash. There are many Nigerians who did not have bank accounts, but you could say, okay, maybe one beneficial thing that came out of the policy was the fact that 86% of businesses we surveyed, um, there was an uptick in use of digital um, transactions, POS, from about 86% of these businesses. Um, so, so those were some of the findings that we got from the survey, and I think it was really damning. Thank you very much, Kelechuku, and I, I can see you're also going along the same lines as Olubumi. It appears that whatever the CBN was planning and whatever they implemented, things went wrong really badly. It is deeply unfortunate, and we, we've heard some of the effects of that on people and on businesses from, from Kelechuku. I want to turn to you now, Chigo Zerim, to help us understand a bit more how the Nigerian system works. Sitting here in Germany, there are so many different innovations that we don't have in Germany, but that we know are currently existing in Nigeria. So for those who don't know, what are the different cash alternatives in the country at the moment? And why didn't they work during the cash scarcity crisis? Like Kilichku mentioned, Nigerians are heavily dependent on cash. So by various estimates, at least 90% of the transactions we do in the country are done via cash. So it's a go-to resource or the go-to payment method for the vast majority of Nigerians. Right. Speaking about the other options that we have, for people in the in the urban areas, you have a lot of options for you. Mm. Um, you could pay using a POS machine. You could pay using a bank transfer. Um, you could pay using QR codes. So QR codes are kind of catching on in certain places in the country, but the major ways of payment are the bank transfer. So right. almost everybody will take a bank transfer. Almost everybody's also going to take a POS payment. So just to quickly come in for those who don't know, POS means point of sales machines. These are machines that are used for receiving card payments in shops, in stores, and, you know, by people generally. Back to you, Chigo Zirim. Are they always reliable? So the only challenge with the POS payment is just like the name implies, you need a POS machine. And um, it's, it, it's a significant cost for many businesses. So I think the average cost of a POS machine is about 20000 naira, which is almost $50, depending on whose exchange you're using. But that makes it very difficult for many businesses to accept payments using um, a POS machine. Paying by transfer is an accepted way of taking a payment. 
but there are some challenges mm. there. You have to confirm a payment before you let the customer leave with the product that they have paid for. And the vast majority of banks in the country do not offer instant confirmation. So you probably need a few minutes. While we have, you, you mentioned it earlier in the introduction, we have like uh, instant payments right. where I, I send money and you're getting it immediately. Right. There's also no guarantee that the person, the recipient of the money gets a confirmation that this money has been sent. So you have the, you have this problem where I've sent money, but the person I'm sending it to hasn't received it or hasn't gotten an alert on their phone that they've received it. And so I have to wait there because, well, if I leave, how else are you going to recover your money if that doesn't happen? So there was this funny incident um, that happened during the, I'll call it the heat of the cashless policy. So I and a colleague decided to leave the house and we just wanted to go without cash. Mm. So our first stop was a bike man and we stopped him and we got onto the bike. So we had cash. So the cash was like our protection in case nobody agrees to take transfer or use APUS to accept payment. So we asked him, first of all, do you have a bank account? He says, yes, he has about three or four bank accounts. Okay, first step, why are you not taking payments for your services using a bank account? And he goes, well, first of all, it's true I have a bank account, but I haven't used it in months. Right. So I don't even know how to access it right now. So he doesn't have, he doesn't have the time to get to the bank to either deposit money or withdraw money. So he just prefers to deal with cash. I think he also saw, said something about um, the difficulty. So mm. um, if we sent him money, his concern was he can't carry a POS machine around while he's doing his business. So if we sent him money, he needed to confirm it. Right. And there was also the chance that even after confirming it, the transaction could be reversed. And if it's reversed... He loses the money, yeah. Yeah, so... Imagine several cases like this mm. happening. Mm. It's just very common for people to say, oh, no, we are not we are not going to take this. Just give us what we can trust. Because like you mentioned earlier, there is a high cost to using cash, but it's high fidelity as well, right? So there were spits of incidents, um, I think that was two, three years ago, where people were getting fake alerts. So that also increased distrust among people who would, merchants who would typically have accepted this as a means of um, transaction. So even though we have a lot of payment options, or oh, I didn't mention the numerous fintech startups who exist in the country. Yeah, maybe you, can you help us understand the landscape a bit as well, the fintech landscape, and what role they could have played in you know the crisis that happened because of the cashless policy? The fintech landscape in Nigeria, it's, it's probably, not probably, it's like the fastest growing subsector of the startup ecosystem. So fintechs, they raise the most money in Nigeria. Mm. And at the last count, there are at least 300 to 400 fintech startups in Nigeria alone. Okay, wow. There's this running joke on Twitter that everybody owns or runs a fintech startup. And people typically ask, how many, do we need more fintech startups? So when it comes to fintechs, mm. we also have a prevalence of payment startups. So when, when it gets to payments, that's pretty much covered. And we have the likes of Flutterwave, Paystack that facilitate B2B payments. Right. So it's very easy. You you have a, a lot of options. You can also pay using USSD. You can pay using transfer. You can pay using a QR code. Or in these these days, a few a few startups are beginning to get um, tap and pay methods that you could use. So that's that for B2B payments. But for B2C payments, which is or peer-to-peer payments, there are a lot of options. So we have the likes of Upi, we have the likes of Pampi, who were in many ways the biggest winners from the cashless policy. So right, that's what I was wondering as well. I was sort of sorry for cutting sure. into you. I was I was wondering. 
because the, what you were describing just now, the situation with the you know with the bike rider yeah. who, of course, isn't going around with a POS terminal to collect payments, whether or not something like you know OPay or one of these payment B two C payment options could have been useful for them. Yeah, so it would have been useful for them. Um, like I mentioned, OPay and Pampe were like the biggest; they were the biggest winners in this saga. So. While Olubimi mentioned that it was a failure for a lot of people, it was a failure for those of us on the streets who had to use this. Mm. But for fintechs like Ope and um, Pampi, it was it was huge for them. They had a lot of people. So mm. you see someone who doesn't typically accept transfers and they tell you, oh, I'm using an OP account or I'm using a Pampi account, make a transfer and go. And they just had this confidence that if it was a transfer done to an OP or Pampi account, it was going to go through. From the questions I asked, a lot of them were less likely to use a bank account because they just felt that was like added friction. The infrastructure for many financial institutions just couldn't hold up in this period. Thank you. I'm going to come to the infrastructure question, but I want to expand the landscape a little bit to include central bank digital currencies as well. President Muhammadu Buhari has formally unveiled the Central Bank of Nigeria's digital currency, also known as e-Naira, in a keynote event attended by top government functionaries at the State House in Abuja. Now, Nigeria is the first African nation to launch a digital currency, making it possible for people who are unbanked or who have bad to no credit to be able to buy things using digital money. Africa's biggest economy joins the Bahamas, which was the first to launch a general purpose central bank digital currency. But experts say questions remain about the e-Naira, particularly over the consistency of the central bank's rules. The Nigerian Central Bank introduced a CBDC, so e-Naira, um, a couple of years ago. Did that play any role here? I mean, so I I doubt it did. Okay. Before the cashless policy was implemented, there was already a lot of distrust around the e-Naira. So first of all, the CBN comes out and they say banks, commercial banks, can't trade with cryptocurrencies. They can't facilitate cryptocurrency transactions, and it gives off the feeling that you do not support this means of transaction. And um, cryptocurrency has caught on um, among a lot of Nigerians, especially the young Nigerians. And then you come out, you say, no, we are not we are not facilitating or we are not accepting this as a legitimate means of transaction. And a few months later, you're launching a CBDC, which, while it may not be a cryptocurrency, it's based off the same technology. Right. It's still based on the blockchain, right? And the problem was, how do you drive acceptance for this? And I, for one, I never opened the, an inner account because if the central bank says we can't allow commercial banks to use or facilitate cryptocurrency transactions, and then later on they're coming out to say, okay, fine, we have a CBDC, come use it. It looks quite inconsistent for me. And a lot of people were just unwilling to go ahead with using the inner. Um, so there was a report recently by the IMF that was casting doubts on the numbers that the CBN claims to have in terms of usage. So the CBN said that I think over a million Nigerians are using it, but it's really difficult to see mm. who and who is using this inner. Yeah. Um, I- Sorry, Olumide, I was just going to give some numbers to um, Chigos. Okay, Kele Chuki, please go ahead. Okay, I was just going to give some numbers to Chigos Jerem's point. And so, so the IMF says uptake after one year, it was a one year study, and they said uptake after one year was 860,000 naira. That's 0.8% of 
what was being traded or was in circulation in Nigerian banks as at November of 2021, because I think they launched in 2020. <laughs> the IMF also said 98.5% of all the Inera wallets that the CBN released were inactive. Right. And so that's 1.5% of the wallets were active and the weekly trade was 14,000 Naira. So that just explains and gives like the number context what um, Chigo's room just, just said. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredibly low usage. Olubimi, do you yourself have an in-era wallet? I'll start like this. And I'm sorry I'm not the mathematics economist here. I'm the policy person. Now, in leadership, especially with the former CBN governor, and now I'm not attacking this person, but then he really made a mess of that leadership seat, and I'm going to address it now. When cryptocurrency was booming amongst young persons, you know, he had to shut it down to an introduced... The Inara wallet. There's a, if, you, if you notice now, there's a consistent pattern of inconsistent policies. Policies that you don't prepare for, but you see that, oh, something is happening, and then you have to ban that to bring in your own policy. Ill-prepared, ill-conceived, then you just brought it up. I read the policy paper that was submitted to the Senate Committee on Finance for the Inara platform. And right from the conceptual process, you could spot a failure. Because you have inconsistent policies, even stakeholders within your sector do not trust you. Banks would not take in, they wouldn't do it because they don't know the next thing you're going to bring. And they will be at fault because you are the regulator, you are the alpha and omega, nobody checks you. So nobody really listens. You know, you go to a bank, you say, I have an in-hour wallet, they say you have to wait in the lobby and see the manager. They cannot do that. It's at the managerial level. Then the manager goes and tells you, oh, we're still setting up our platform. Uh, da, 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 we have to get something from the CBN. We have to get a directive on so, so, so. So you get frustrated in the whole process. And I strictly doubt that amount that CBN is quoted uh, as regards the subscribers to the Inara wallet. I doubt it. I sincerely doubt it. Because the young persons of Nigeria who uh, trade in these things cannot buy into something the CBN is bringing. That's on the one side. Now, I'd like to add, I'm sorry I'm taking us back. Now, however, the cashless policy thing did a good thing. One thing that I probably resonate with that the cashless policy did was that we have a problem with electoral fraud in Nigeria. And it's the truth. We have a problem with, and one of the major problems is vote buying. And the CBN said to curb vote buying, they would have to reduce the amount of cash in the system. And if for anything, if you notice that directive, the policy came close to the elections. And I can testify to you as somebody that was on ground throughout the elections that it did a whole lot for a mopping cash, you know, that is expected to be used by political actors. Because trust me, the amount of cash that was in the system that political actors uh, were pushing to use to buy votes was, was outrageous, really outrageous. And that policy did a whole lot in bringing it down. It didn't stop it. There were still allegations of vote buying, but then it brought it down a whole lot. Yeah, I want to see whether you can bring to this your experience from the Senate. What were the discussions around this like from the Senate, both on the in era and also on the cashless policy? The Senate uh, is filled with politicians. So while they try to, quote and unquote, safeguard the interest of their constituents, it's a survival game for them as politicians. The policy came close to elections. Mm. Money is a major tool in Nigerian politics. Mm. And it's not that's no news for everyone that's Nigerian here. And for example, as a senator, 
Weeks, like the senator came out to say boldly that Weeks to his oh no, an honorable, the former majority leader. Let me mention the former majority leader came out and said he is an House of Rep member and he's saying before his elections he needs at least a hundred million naira in cash. He was not ashamed to say it, he said it for the newsmen. So, first of all, I would say they were fighting the CBN governor, quote and unquote, not the CBN policy. Mm. They were fighting him because they feel he's a threat to their political survivor, not because of Nigeria. So let's not mix the two here. Now, procedurally, in the legislature, when you have a conflict uh, between an agency of government that's from the executive and the legislature, there's always an area where they invite the CBN governor. But the CBN governor was invited more than three times. He did not come. He kept sending representatives, and then the House of Representatives and uh, Senate kept sending them back. So all they were doing was words on newspapers and insults and all that. So you could see that politics was the overall umbrella here, not the interest of Nigerians. And that was my, those were my deductions. But officially, the legislative arm of government rejected the policy. Right. But they could not do anything because in Nigeria, we're still trying to, we're doing a wobble kind of democracy where you have the executive loading over all arms of government. So, the scarcity crisis is now easing and things are still slowly returning to normal. Partly because the CBN allowed the old notes back into circulation. We wanted to find out how Nigerians are thinking of that period, that scarcity period, and if their payment habits have changed. My name is Sharon. Um a promoter and also a merchandiser. Cash is very, very important, not just to me, I think to everybody. Because we make use of cash every day for daily activities because I need to like, you know, move from one place to the other in terms of transportation, in terms of feeding. How did it affect me? It really affected me in terms of transportation because there was high cost of transportation and there was a need to have enough money to be able to like move from one place to the other. It didn't affect me in the area of spending, like buying things because I was able to like, you know, caution myself. Um, I was able to learn how to, you know, minimize my spending. Uh, well, for me, bank transfers. <laughs> yeah, bank transfers and, you know, debit and credit cards. Those are my <laughs> preferred options. My name is James Godwin. During the scarcity, business almost went to a halt. So we had to use all these apps like Opay and CUDA to keep the business afloat. And now that the scarcity is over, I think we've gone back to using more cash, but I'll say since many systems are already in place, I think we also do more cashless transactions than before the scarcity. Payment transaction apps, OPE, CUDA, and the like. I think we, we, we still need cash. Government needs to educate many people and provide more structure because there are many customers that don't know how to use all these apps. My name is Dennis Obara. I'm a marketer. Cash is very important in my line of work. The cash scarcity period was very, very difficult. For my business, we had to pause until we could get hold of physical cash. So it was a difficult time. How we adapted, we basically started patronizing 
local POS operators since most banks did not have enough cash in their ATMs or the crowds really too much. Uh, later on, I, I had a friend at the bank who was able to give us some, some cash. So that's how we coped. In the beginning of the scarcity, yes, we all started using less cash. Most people were doing transfers. But post-scarcity, we've all reverted back to physical cash. Preferred cashless option is bank transfer. I, that's the best method I think we have so far. I don't think we should be using cashless options. I have no. I don't want the government to do anything about that. I don't think Nigeria is equipped with the proper infrastructure to adopt cashless options. So we should stick to cash for now. That was Sharon, James, and Dennis in Lagos, Nigeria. We've talked about the issues. We've even mentioned in passing the problem of infrastructure. Olubumi, people like Sharon say they are spending less now because of the crisis. But as we all know, no economy wants people to spend less, right? Would you say that the policy, the cashless policy failed totally? And if you were advising the CBN under the new leadership, how would you say they should correct this unintended consequence? As simple as it starts, I think the questions posed to your interviewees some minutes ago, they answered it perfectly. You know, one of the questions that was posed to one of the representatives from CBN, the Senate, I remember was that if all Nigerians move to e-banking, you know, no cash and all that, can our banking infrastructure take that assault? In all reality, take 200 million people or even less. Can, can the banks take that? Frankly, no. So for me, right, the cashless policy was bound to fail. It failed. If, if it's brought up within now and maybe the end of the year, it will fail again. Because for every policy, I'm sorry, I'm going back to policy, policy, policy. For every policy to succeed, there are background works one needs to do. Mm-hmm. Things like consultations with stakeholders, owners of banks. You know, stakeholders still involved, for example, the king of my village that has no banks. They will be the one to relate to the market woman that sells pepper, the shoemaker, the artisans and all that. Uh, uh, there are so many things that need to be done at the background before you bring that kind of policy and it succeeds. I think it can succeed. I, of course, I think Nigeria can go cash. Mm. I disagree with you. All the person that says Nigeria cannot go cash, I think you can go cash. But there are stages of policy implementation right from conceptualizations that we need to do. And this will take months. It will take years before we move to that stage of implementation. So it can succeed. Right. Now, to the impact on the economy, I think we are worse than we've been before because people are still recovering. And I don't think people would recover in months to come. Because that dealt a huge assault on the economy. Mm. To answer your question, I think it failed. And I think if it's brought again in months to come, it will fail. And the economy will not recover in a long time. Right. Thank you. Chigozirim, I'm, I'm coming to you now. You've already spoken a bit earlier about infrastructure issues. The way I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking of this on two levels. And please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm thinking of infrastructure in the sense of what Olubumi just mentioned of, you know, the banks need to be able to actually process this many transactions if Nigeria is going to go cashless, right? So you need to have the infrastructure within the banks working well. But then the other issue is there are so many places where banks don't exist at all. So those are two different but related infrastructure 
questions. In your opinion, what needs to happen to fix these two problems? Because without fixing them, the cashless policy will not work, according to what Olubumi is telling us. Yes, so you're absolutely correct about these two things needing to be present for any cashless policy to work. So let's start with the rural areas. Olubumi has given an example of how in his village there's practically no bank or the closest bank is very far. That's the reality for the vast majority of Nigerians. I traveled during the elections. I traveled to Aba, which is where I grew up. And the only time I could see a place where I could find cash, it was just once. There was no place. And anyone who knows Aba knows how much of a, bu- a bustling town it is. People are always moving around. But there was no one. Like the roads were scanty, the roads were empty because people couldn't leave their houses. They couldn't pay for transportation. If you go to the markets where a lot of the people make their living, you couldn't pay for um, goods because what I discovered during that trip was that while people in Lagos were willing to accept transfers, people in the Southeast complained that, yes, okay, fine, we can take transfers, but the facilities are not there. So the infrastructure is just not there. You make a transfer and it never goes through. So why should they take that as an option? And how do you get more people, first of all, to to have the infrastructure to make payments or accept payments? I think, first of all, it starts with giving them a reason to do that. Okay. While we can criticize the use of cash from now to tomorrow, the reality is that there's no extra cost apart from that imaginary security cost. Hmm. There's no monetary cost to using cash. So if I pay you with cash, I don't incur any extra charge. You don't incur any extra charge. Or you make a transfer today with most Nigerian banks and you have to pay for those transactions. Right. Now, for me, maybe paying an extra 10 naira or extra 15 naira may not be an issue. But for the woman in the market, that may be a reason for her to not use any of the digital options available to her. So for the individual, if we can't eliminate the barriers for someone who doesn't use a digital payment system, then there's really no reason for them to do it. So sometimes in order for you to encourage them, you just have to pay that difference in order for them to accept that. So I've spoken with a few bankers who they don't think it's their responsibility to take on that cost because at scale, it becomes a lot. Right. Yeah, because it, it adds up. Yeah, it, it, it adds right. up. So should it be the CBN driving this? I don't really have the answer. Or should it be a CBN bank conversation? Should they be doing this together? So I was listening to someone speak and he said one of the reasons why the banks were unable to handle the huge influx of people who were making digital payments is that they were not consulted. And I think Ulubumi alluded to it earlier. A lot of them were not consulted before these changes were implemented. So if they were consulted, that would have given them a heads up to say, okay, fine, we have 10 million customers and 4 million make Hmm. digital transfers or make transfers every month. Maybe we should upgrade it to 6 million assuming an extra 2 million decide that they want to do this. But because that conversation was never had, they were not able to do that. And so we had a case where I think the first three or four weeks were terrible. They were terrible. You could you could spend hours just to make a transfer. Mm. People were People stranded died. in People the market. Died. People died, exactly. My housemate was telling me a story, and it was really sad. A woman wanted to make a transfer, and because of the cost, she had to beg for hours. And by the time she was gone, mm. her child was dead. So these were very tangible fallouts of that policy. The banks were just unprepared. Mm. And they say you do not prepare for war during the war. You can't expect them to start making those changes in the heat of the whole fiasco. Because banks had issues, but the fintechs did not really have issues. 
And one reason they didn't have issues is because very few fintechs have the scale of banks or have the number of customers that banks have. Right. I think the largest fintechs in terms of customers are OP and um, probably Pampi because they had aggressive customer acquisition um, strategy too. They they have like about 10 million users. First Bank, GT Bank, these are the largest banks in Nigeria. Some of them have as many as 15 million users. So you can't compare you having 10 million users with a fintech that probably has 250,000 people. So it was like a loop, as I said repeatedly, this was a policy that was doomed to fail. I know the crazy thing is the ordinary man on the street could see that this policy was, was going to fail from the first day it was announced. I had conversations with bike men who were like, this is a useless policy. And I remember asking a friend, if these guys who have no education can see this, Even why the can't the CPI governor knew it would fail. He knew it. He knew right. it would fail. Right. Yeah. So, he knew it wasn't going to succeed. So why why was it even done in the first place? I, I can still hear the pain as you're both describing this and, and just to also learn of people who lost their lives because of a policy that wasn't well thought through and that wasn't well implemented. Kilechuku, I want to come to you now to talk a bit about the e-Naira. I'm still fascinated by the whole idea of the e-Naira and the central bank I think they said that there was a surge in the usage of Inera during the crisis. Uh, what do you think the future is for Inera? So before I talk about the Inera, I, I think I, sh- I just need to add a couple of things because I've had some thoughts rolling in my head while Emilia and Chigodrin were talking. Um, we should also not forget that the interbank um, settlement system that runs most of digital payments in Nigeria lost staff to, to the JAPA syndrome. And so do the commercial banks. Uh, before you go ahead, I think we're going to need a bit of explanation of Jackpot syndrome. Can someone help us with that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, Nigerians, um, especially like the cream, the cream of the Nigerian economy that the West wants, all running away and taking advantage of opportunities in the West to get a more structured life. That's it. So the banks also had that same issue of losing um, staff. And that had an effect because you, you were having increased volumes and then you were having low staff, low quality staff to be able to process these payments. And then let's also not forget, like the CBN actually knows how to execute policies. The cashless policy was released in 2012 and there was a financial inclusion strategy that allowed for the creation of licenses, payment provider licenses, new switching licenses, and that allowed or facilitated mobile money operators, facilitated POS. Hmm. So it's not like the CBL does not know how to move the needle in terms of financial inclusion. I think, I don't know, they say it's politics, but something just went wrong with coming out with that narrow swap. To the question of the inner, I don't really see a hope for the inner. There's a reason why the U.S. have thought, tried, successfully decided to launch a central bank digital currency. There's a reason why China has like launched its own and has not aggressively pushed it. There's a reason why countries with better infrastructure are not pushing it. Because a lot of people see crypto as a form of liberal, you know, digital currency and a form of argument against the structure, against the system. And so why would they want to use a central or a centrally controlled cash currency when they feel liberalized using a, a blockchain that gives you the feeling that nobody is in control of it? So another thing we should also note is if 
the cashless policy drive does not move in sync with broadband penetration, does not move in sync with availability of last mile internet structures, we will continue to have failed transactions when the volumes are more than the system, more than the existing structure can handle. And so that also affects the use of the inera and the CBN should really think about that. I, I, for me, I feel it should be scrapped because you will never get an uptick is if there are other cryptocurrencies that go viral, Binance, um, Solana and the rest of them, people will prefer to use those as against using the inera. Thank you, Kelechuku. As you were talking, I was thinking of other countries' experiences, you know, because you mentioned experiences with CBDC. I was also thinking of how other countries introduced the cashless policy. I think India did that a few years ago, and whether or not there's something that Nigeria could learn from that or that policymakers could look at. Yeah, yeah, so India did that, I think it was in 2016, right? Yes. And um, the results are mixed. Right. Because India also tried to pull out a lot of cash from the system. And this is a country of about 1.2 billion people with a large rural population, with a large poor population. Right. And it affected them. They didn't expect the results. And a lot of the gains that they thought they had made, I think they've been, they've been reversed because this came up when Nigeria did its own. And even if you are going to, like I said, Nigeria has been implementing a cashless policy because the country first introduced limits on ATM to 150,000, banks 500,000 in 2012. And nobody cried. Right. Because there was some form of effective implementation. They did not try as in 2012 to mop up over 2 trillion from the economy in six weeks. That didn't happen. If you do that in any economy, it's going to have a very... I don't know, a very devastating effect. Right, all right. I want to thank you very much, Kelechuku, Olubumi, and Chigo Zirim for a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Here is what I've learned in this conversation. From Olubumi, the policy analyst, I have learned that implementing policies that will impact 200 million people and the way they spend their money definitely requires extensive consultation with many, many people. Right down to local leaders in rural communities who were badly hit by the cashless experiment. And of course, it requires a lot of time for people to adapt to the new system. A lot more time that was apparently available when this experiment was implemented. In this case, the CBN's deadline for people to stop using the old Naira notes was only about a month. Secondly, as Kilechuku rightly pointed out, any further attempt at going cashless in Nigeria has to factor in the rate of internet penetration. At the moment, internet and communication failures when trying to make bank transfers or use POS machines, point-of-sales machines, are way too common. And that's why banks could not take the pressure during the crisis. So cashless and better internet infrastructure have to go hand in hand moving forward. Finally, from Chim Gozirim's analysis, it is clear that the extra charges incurred when using digital methods like bank transfers or debit cards for payments will continue to discourage a huge chunk of the population, people for whom every Naira counts. If the central bank really wants to see more people use less cash, then it might need to consider subsidizing those extra costs. 
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Nigeria's digital banking sector, the e-Naira, and the central bank's cashless policy, we have found and compiled a list of the most interesting papers and articles on our website. That is afropoli.org forward slash podcasts. The Africa Hour is brought to you by APRI, Africa Policy Research Institute, and is produced by Bia Radio. I am Olumide Abimbola. Our producer is Shola Lawal, with assistance from Hannah Lang in Berlin and Faith Akilo in Lagos. Thank you.